History Courses presents From Settlement to Superpower The Spanish Century Episode 3 Henry the Navigator the scorching summer sun blazed in the sky over the city of Sabda, its rays beating down on the mighty walls and towering minarets. Normally the city would be bustling with human activity, its marketplaces and bazaars teeming with merchants and traders, its streets awash with the clamor of a teeming mass of humanity, haggling and bargaining, buying and selling. But today... An eerie silence lay over the city. The marketplaces were empty, the warehouses deserted, the streets empty except for the soldiers running frantically towards the city's ramparts. It was August 21st, 1415, and death had come to Sabta. Off the coast of Sabta lay a vast Portuguese fleet, sails filling the horizon. Hundreds of galleys lay at anchor, carrying King John I of Portugal and a Christian army 50,000 strong. The Moorish governor of Sabta, Salah bin Salah, had been anticipating this attack for some time and had gathered within his walls a defending force that greatly outnumbered the Portuguese invaders. But a storm at sea persuaded him that the Portuguese threat had passed. In a fatal miscalculation, he disbanded his defending force just a few days before the Portuguese fleet arrived off the coast. Now he faced the full fury of the mighty Portuguese host with nothing but the city's garrison. The defenders of Sabta stood virtually no chance. All through the morning, the Portuguese soldiers were ferried ashore by longboats, weapons glinting in the sun. King John had been injured in the leg by an arrow as he was being rowed ashore, and as a consequence he returned to his ship and designated his son, Prince Henry, to lead the first assault on the city. The Moors fought valiantly to defend their city, but their valor was equally matched by the Portuguese. After a short but fierce fight outside the city gates, the Portuguese successfully drove the Moors back in such disorder that the attackers were able to seize the city's gate before it could be properly closed. From that point on, the city's fate was sealed. Although the defenders put up a stiff resistance inside the city walls, they were soon overwhelmed by the Portuguese knights and utterly routed. The Portuguese, astonishingly, claimed to have lost only eight men in the capture of the city. With the fighting over, the Portuguese fanned out and began plundering the city. Nobody in the city was safe. Even Christian merchants had their wares pillaged and were themselves put to torture. Warehouses brimming with eastern spices and oils were set aflame, and the elaborate marble and alabaster columns that adorned the former palace of Salah bin Salah were torn down and carried off. The banner of Lisbon was raised over the citadel of Sabta, and the city's magnificent mosque was converted to a church. 
the mighty city of Sabta, hitherto to be known as Ceuta, had fallen into Christian hands, where it would remain for the next six centuries. The fall of Ceuta was to be a pivotal moment in the life of the 21-year-old Prince Henry of Portugal, who had just undergone his baptism of fire and was, in recognition of his valor, knighted in one of the converted mosques in the fallen city. Henry had been born on the 4th of March 1394, the third surviving son of King John of Portugal. Reportedly, Henry's horoscope predicted, based on the dominance of Mars and Saturn at the moment of his birth, that his life was to be dedicated to, quote, making great and noble conquests and to the uncovering of secrets previously hidden from men. Whether this astrological prediction had any impact on Henry's ambitions and self-image is anybody's guess, but whether he looked to the stars for guidance or not, conquest and discovery was indeed to be the young prince's destiny. Henry grew up steeped in the chivalric traditions of the House of Aviz, as well as those of the Plantagenets. His mother was the eldest daughter of John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. He took a deep interest in both the war and the pageantry so valued by the fighting men of his generation. But even more relevant, Henry was profoundly influenced by the crusading ethos that permeated the Iberian Peninsula. Constant war against the heathen was considered a sacred duty, and a Christian prince could do no nobler act than wield his sword against the enemies of the faith. Throughout his life, Henry was a staunch proponent of constant crusade against the Muslims, and whatever other motives he may have had, there was always a deep and genuine undercurrent of religious zeal fueling Henry's ambitions. It should come as no surprise, then, that the young Prince Henry was an ardent promoter of the expedition against Ceuta. His father, King John, was the hero who had established a new ruling dynasty in Portugal and shattered a vastly superior Castilian force at the Battle of Aljubarota. Now Henry wanted his turn to prove himself a warrior equal to his father's name. And what better target to prove oneself against than a key Moorish city sitting astride the Strait of Gibraltar, the key to both the Mediterranean and Morocco? Accordingly, Henry led the push in the king's council to go to war against Ceuta and to wrest the city from the hands of the Marinid Sultanate. King John eventually acquiesced, and the grand expedition was arranged with much fanfare, although the actual destination, Ceuta, was a closely kept secret until the army had already embarked and was at sea. By all accounts, Prince Henry behaved with astonishing courage during the fight for the city, fighting bravely at the very front of his troops. Indeed, the critic might even say that Henry's behavior crossed the line from valor to rashness, as the prince advanced so far ahead of his fellows that he was surrounded by a group of Ceuta's defenders, and in the attempt to relieve him, his dear friend and the governor of his household lost his life. This impetuosity and its resultant tragedy prefigured a much greater tragedy that would occur decades later in Henry's life, a result of the selfsame recklessness in battle displayed on this occasion. 
With the romantic part of the conquest done, the Portuguese now had to get down to the decidedly unromantic task of working out the dollars and cents of their new imperial acquisition. To put it plainly, Ceuta was a money pit. Whatever wealth Ceuta once possessed had evaporated with the Portuguese conquest. Previously, the city had been determinous for the trans-Saharan trade routes, but with the Portuguese capture of the city, those trade routes had shifted to the nearby city of Tangier. Ceuta had been transformed from a center of trade to a garrison city, with a large standing army that not only needed to be paid, but also needed to be provisioned at great cost from Portugal, since the Moroccans refused to sell them any food and raiding the countryside was not a reliable way to secure provisions. Indeed, many at court made the argument that Ceuta should be abandoned on account of its limited utility and abysmal balance sheet, but Henry vigorously opposed the idea, arguing that as a matter of religion, honor, and statecraft, it was impossible to abandon the city they had so gloriously conquered. Henry was soon appointed by his father to be responsible for, quote, all matters pertaining to our city of Ceuta and the defense thereof. A few years later, he led a relief force to Ceuta to fend off a determined marinade assault on the city, and in 1420, his father successfully petitioned the Pope to have Henry appointed Grand Master of the Order of Christ, which was the Portuguese successor to the Knights Templar. This appointment was in keeping with Henry's self-image as a crusader, and moreover provided him with a substantial flow of income that would later help finance his expeditions down the coast of Africa. And we're about to enter this period of Henry's career, so I just want to take a moment to talk about the main source we have for the career of Prince Henry the Navigator, Gomes Yanis de Azurara, the chief chronicler of the Kingdom of Portugal. Azurara wrote a work entitled The Chronicle of the Discovery and Conquest of Guinea, which covers the Portuguese voyages of exploration through 1448. The thing is, Azurara's chronicle is basically a panegyric in praise of Henry the Navigator, and the reason for this becomes clear as soon as you read Azurara's introduction, which begins with the words, here beginneth the chronicle in which are set down all the notable deeds that were achieved in the conquest of Guinea, written by command of the most high and revered prince and most virtuous lord, the infant Don Henry, Duke of Viseu and Lord of Covalam, ruler and governor of the chivalry of the Order of Jesus Christ. The which chronicle was collected into this volume by command of the most high and excellent prince and most powerful lord, the King Don Afonso V, of Portugal. End quote. It goes without saying that such a work needs to be taken with a grain of salt, but in the end of the day, it's pretty much the only book we have on this period. There's a smattering of documents that shed light on this or that element of the prince's life and works, but for the most part, we're forced to rely on Azurara, who explicitly bases his work on the prince's recollection. And so what we're going to do here is generally give Azurara's account of things and where he over-romanticizes his narrative, we can just mention what he says and then go on to elaborate what most likely actually happened. 
So Henry's very first activity that brought him beyond Ceuta seems to have been a direct continuation of the crusading ethos that had dominated his life up until that point. Although Jean de Betancourt had succeeded in establishing control over the islands of Lanzarote, Fuerteventura, and El Hierro, the more populous islands of Gran Canaria, La Palma, La Gomera, and Tenerife had held out against his adventurers. Henry had grown interested in the Atlantic during the early 1420s, and the island of Gran Canaria offered an outlet for his crusading zeal. This was as good of a time as any for Henry to get involved in the Canaries, as Monsieur de Betancourt, the nephew of Jean de Betancourt, had recently sold the Canary Islands to the Count of Niebla, initiating a period of some fifteen years during which the Count gradually sold off his rights to the island, and they transferred in piecemeal faction first to the Las Casas family and later to the related Peraza family. This meant that for the time being there was no strong figure based in the Canaries to keep interlopers out. In 1424, Henry dispatched a large expedition to Gran Canaria, comprised of 2,500 infantry and 120 horsemen. In a humiliating setback for Henry, the expedition failed miserably. We don't know with any certainty any details of the 1424 expedition's defeat because Azuraro was too embarrassed to write about it at any great length. We just know that the men were sent and they were beaten back, almost certainly because the natives were able to just retreat into the interior and engage in hit-and-run attacks on the invaders until their supplies ran out. This was a galling failure. And all through his life, Henry would covet the Canaries and repeatedly try, without success, to wrest them from the hands of Castile. We're going to save Henry's repeated attempts to get his hands on the Canaries for next episode, where we will treat them more fully. But even as Henry was licking his wounds from the humiliating repulse his expedition had suffered at the hands of the heathen, success began to show itself from a different quarter. Sometime during this period, two squires of Henry's, Joao Gonçalves Zarco and Tristayo Vaz, were blown off course by a storm and discovered an island in the Atlantic, which they named Porto Santo, or Holy Harbor, in gratitude for the providence that had saved them from the storm and driven them to this distant island. The island was completely uninhabited, which made it useless for the slavers who had been harassing the Canaries for close to a century now, but it nonetheless held tremendous promise for whoever would be willing to colonize it. The island had many open spaces well suited for agriculture, and more importantly, it was, like the Canary Islands, home to a population of dragon trees. These trees were extremely valuable for a red resin they produced, known as dragon's blood, which was used both for dyeing textiles as well as for medicinal purposes. The squire soon discovered an even larger, heavily wooded island near Porto Santo, which they named Madeira, or Timber. Somewhere about 1425, at Henry's instigation, Portuguese colonists began to settle the islands. Porto Santo was the first of the two islands to be colonized, on account of how heavily wooded Madeira was. 
However, an amusing ecological fiasco significantly hampered Porto Santo's early development. According to legend, when Bartolomeo Perestrello, the explorer tasked by Henry with populating the island, first arrived, he released a pregnant rabbit onto the island to serve as a food source. It was a wonderful idea if not for the tiny problem that the island was not populated by any predators, and so within a few years the island was so infested with feral rabbits that nothing of any value could be planted there, and colonial focus shifted to Madeira. The colonization of Madeira was much more successful. The virgin soil was extraordinarily rich and the entire island was well irrigated by innumerable mountain streams which led to bountiful crop yields once the forest was cleared away. Initially, the settlers just produced cereal crops, but they would eventually realize what a waste it was to squander such a fecund island on something as pedestrian as wheat and would move to viniculture, and more importantly, sugar. By the time Henry's brother Edward became king and formally granted him the islands in 1433, they were already profitable concerns. Funds from Madeira would join those from the Order of Christ in funding Henry the Navigator's famous voyages of exploration, which would secure his place in the pages of history. It is unclear at what point Henry began to interest himself in exploration farther down the coast of Africa, but by the late 1420s Henry's vessels were exploring in all directions. To the west they discovered the Azores, but the chief direction in which Henry's sailors probed was to the south. At some point during the 1420s, Henry decided that he wanted to press south to explore as far as he could down the African coastline. There were numerous motives at play here. There was the obvious motive, which tends to be centered by modern historians, which was to discover the river of gold and the source of the Trans-Saharan gold trade. And while that was certainly one of Henry's motives, it was very far from the only motive, and indeed may very well have not even been the main motive. After all, Henry had in him more of the spirit of the medieval crusader than that of the adventurer and explorer, and like his ventures in North Africa, his exploratory activities were suffused with religious fervor. From a religious perspective, the discovery of new lands afforded Henry the possibility of finding new populations to convert to Christianity, which, as in the case of the Canaries, was often accomplished simply by enslaving the natives. But even more tantalizing to Henry was the prospect of finding the legendary kingdom of Prester John. The Prester was said to rule a great and mighty kingdom of Christians beyond the lands of Islam. Over the years, this legendary kingdom was said to exist in sub-Saharan Africa, India, Central Asia, or the Orient, depending on who was saying the story, where he was saying it, and when he was saying it. Henry was of the opinion, based on the Castilian Book of Knowledge that we've mentioned in previous episodes, that the Prester reigned somewhere on the Guinean coast. If only he could make contact with the Prester and his vast armies, he would be able to coordinate a massive crusade to sweep the Muslims out of Africa. The search for Prester John, the desire to convert the native population, and the desire for gold were all motives that impelled Henry 
to send his ships southward year after year. However, for the first 10 to 15 years, Henry was bedeviled by a seemingly insurmountable obstacle, one that was both psychological and material. Cape Bojador, an outward jutting promontory along the coast of Africa at an approximate latitude of 26 degrees north, with hidden submerged rocks, fearsome currents, and extremely adverse winds. If one wished to pass around the Cape, one had to go far out to sea, completely out of sight of the coastline. The Cape's Arabic name was Abu Khatar, or Father of Danger, which should give you some hint as to the Cape's terrifying reputation. Up until this point, no European vessel had ever sailed past Cape Bojador and returned to tell the tale, at least not since distant antiquity. Legends abounded about the devil's lair beyond the Cape. It was said that in the sultry tropic climes the sun poured down sheets of liquid fire and smoke and fog obscured the sky. All kinds of terrifying sea beasts were imagined living down there, and it was an accepted orthodoxy among many sailors that God would smite any man who crossed Bojador with unhealable blackness for his temerity in entering the realm of the devil. Of course, scholars and the educated might have laughed off those concerns by the 15th century, but sailors have never been known for their embrace of rationalism in the face of superstition. The way Azurara tells the story, Henry sent no less than 15 expeditions over a period of 12 years, each with the task of passing Cape Bojador. Every year an expedition was sent to clear the Cape, and every year that expedition would return with its tail between its legs, its object foiled not by shipwreck and disease, but rather by sheer terror of the horrors beyond. Henry's patience ran out in 1433, after a squire of his by the name of Gillianus returned in failure, citing the conventional knowledge that Cape Bojador was impassable. Henry rebuked Giannis, saying in Azurara's words, you cannot find a peril so great that the hope of reward will not be greater, and in truth I wonder much at the notion you have all taken on so uncertain a matter. For even if these things that are reported had any authority, however small, I would not blame you. But you tell me only the opinions of four mariners who come but from the Flanders trade or from some other ports that are very commonly sailed to, and who know nothing of the needle or sailing chart. Go forth, then, and heed none of their words, but make your voyage straight away inasmuch as with the grace of God you cannot but gain from this journey honor and profit. Henry's exhortation made a deep impression on Giannis, and in the next year he set out again, this time determined to achieve his goal or die trying. And achieve his goal he did. When Giannis reached the Cape, he swung his ship out to sea, and when he returned to the coast, he found that he had, indeed, bypassed the treacherous Cape Bojador and was now on its southern side, in peaceful waters. Giannis went ashore, picked some plants, and sailed home in triumph. He had passed the unpassable. Once Bojador's perils and terrors had been defeated, Henry's project was never again in jeopardy. No obstacle, not even the Cape of Good Hope, would prove to be as tenacious or difficult an obstacle for the Portuguese to overcome.
This is the standard story of the conquering of Bojador as relayed to us by Asurara. Naturally enough, there are plenty of questions regarding if this was exactly how matters transpired. For example, there is extensive scholarly dispute about whether the cape known to the Portuguese as Cape Bojador was in fact the same Cape Bojador we have on our maps, whether it was really what is now known as Cape Juby opposite the Canaries, or whether it was a conflation of the two, the geographical distance of Cape Bojador combined with the perils of Cape Juby. I myself am quite ill-equipped to form my own judgment on this particular subject, so I simply leave you with knowledge of this dispute. In any event, it doesn't make much of a difference to the larger scheme of things because in the following year, 1435, Gillianus went out again at Henry's behest, and this time he definitely passed the Cape Bojador we have on our maps, reaching all the way to Garnet Bay, some 70 miles south of the Cape. Bojador had been conquered, and with it fell the greatest obstacle in the way of Portuguese expansion. In the aftermath of Janus's success, the Portuguese moved slowly but steadily southward. Over the next two years, Henry dispatched three expeditions beyond Bojador, probing another 200 miles or so down the coast, to a gulf which they named Rio de Oro, or River of Gold in anticipation that this might be the mouth of the legendary river which so many had sought in vain. As it turned out, they were wrong, and what they thought might be the mouth of the great river turned out to be nothing more than a desolate and sandy inlet. Still, the name stuck, and the area was called Rio de Oro up until the mid-20th century. The actual discovery and navigation of the real-life Rio de Oro would not come until 1455, when the Portuguese would explore up the Senegal River. But Henry's exploratory endeavors were about to come to a screeching halt for the next four years, as Henry would be beset by the greatest personal disaster of all his life. Henry, as we've already pointed out, was at heart a crusader, and the ongoing war against the Moors was always the foremost consideration in his mind. Even as his squires cleared Cape Bojador, Henry's mind was primarily focused not on the sea or sub-Saharan Africa, but on the area where he had first won his spurs, Morocco. As we mentioned previously, the capture of Ceuta yielded few material gains for Portugal and on the contrary was a great burden on Portugal's finances. The chief problem was that Ceuta was too isolated, just one solitary fortress among a sea of enemies. If only Portugal's holdings and Morocco could be expanded, Ceuta might not be as much of a burden as it presently was. As early as 1432, Henry was aggressively pushing his father to approve a massive military expedition to capture the city of Tangier from the Marinids. This was of course no simple proposal. Tangier was an extremely powerful and well-defended city, and an expedition against it would be both exorbitantly expensive and a massive risk. Many at court, including members of the royal family, opposed the expedition, but Henry was persistent, and following his father's death and his brother Edward's accession to the throne, he got Edward to agree to send the expedition. What was more, he got himself command over the expedition, 
much to the alarm of those in Portugal who recognized the dangers posed to the entire expedition by Henry's zeal and impetuosity. But despite any misgivings he may have had, the king kept Henry in command. However, the king commanded Henry that no more than three attempts to storm the city should be undertaken, and if the city did not fall within one week of siege, Henry should withdraw his forces to safety. From the start, the expedition did not go as planned. Of the 14,000 men assembled for the endeavor, over a third of them had to be left behind in Portugal due to a lack of means of transport. Upon his arrival in Ceuta, Henry rejected his subordinate's suggestion that with so diminished a force he should perhaps confirm with the king before pressing on to Tangier, and in September 1437 he and his forces set out for their objective. When they arrived at Tangier, the Portuguese received several nasty shocks. For starters, the walls of Tangier were well-maintained and extensive, not run down and in a state of disrepair as Henry had led the king to believe. The city itself had a much larger garrison than they had expected, ironically commanded by the same Salah bin Salah whom Henry had defeated at Ceuta twenty years earlier and archers and artillery prevented the attackers from getting too close to the city. The Portuguese also found that they had insufficient siege artillery to bombard the city into submission, and they were forced to hunker down and wait within a stockade they had constructed until more siege equipment could be brought from Ceuta. Henry's orders had been to withdraw in a situation such as this, but a man like Henry was unwilling to retreat before the heathen and admit defeat, and so he remained, trusting that God would deliver victory. As it transpired, God had different plans, because over the next several weeks, Moroccan reinforcements swarmed around the Portuguese stockade, and soon it was Henry who found himself besieged. He had neglected to secure a path to his ships off the beach, again contrary to his orders, and as a consequence, the Moroccans were able to cut off all avenues of retreat. The Portuguese force was trapped, and complete annihilation stared them in the face. But Salah bin Salah had other plans. He intended to use this victory to undo the defeat Henry had inflicted on him decades ago, and rather than destroy the Portuguese army, he allowed them to return to their ships in exchange for the following capitulation signed by Henry. For the sake of peace and concord, I give my undertaking to you, Salah bin Salah, that I will hand over to you the city of Ceuta, together with all captive Moors who may be held there or those who are there as hostages for other captives, also those who are held aboard the fleet or in the camp here. To guarantee that these things will be done, I shall give you the Prince Don Fernando, my brother. This was the greatest disaster of Henry's life. Not only had he been ignominiously defeated, he had been forced to hand over his own youngest brother as a pledge against his surrender of Ceuta, his crowning achievement. Henry and Prince Ferdinand had been extremely close, with Henry seeing himself as his little brother's protector, and Ferdinand reciprocating with fulsome admiration of his elder brother. 
Ferdinand himself had been assured that his captivity would be a brief one, and he would be released as soon as possible when Ceuta would be surrendered back to the Marinids. But Henry had betrayed him. He had no intention of giving back his city to the Moroccans, and if that came at the cost of his troth and his younger brother's life, so be it. Henry himself seems to have been ashamed of what he was doing, as he didn't even send his brother any sort of message of reassurance upon leaving Tangier. But ashamed or not ashamed, Henry didn't look back, and unlike his other brothers who were in favor of returning Ceuta in exchange for Prince Fernando, Henry vigorously opposed such a move and, with a divided council, left the king unable to unilaterally return the city to the Moors. King Edward himself was shattered by the news and his health took a nosedive. Just a few months later he was dead, and his six-year-old son inherited the crown as Alfonso V. After a period of political turbulence, Henry's oldest surviving brother, Don Pedro, was installed as the young King Alfonso's regent. Don Pedro acutely needed the political support of Henry, and as a consequence, Prince Ferdinand's fate was sealed. The hapless prince had been treated well at first, as the Marinids believed that Henry was going to uphold his side of the bargain. But as the months slipped by and it became progressively clearer that Henry had chosen to abandon his brother rather than cede his conquest, Ferdinand's situation worsened. He was moved from his relatively comfortable lodgings to a dingy prison cell, and as more time passed and his increasingly desperate letters to Portugal yielded no results, Ferdinand sunk into a deep depression and his guards took out their fury on their unfortunate captive. The next years were full of futile and bad faith negotiations between the Portuguese and the Marinids, while Ferdinand's treatment at the hands of his captors worsened to the point where he began to yearn for death in his plaintive letters back to Portugal. The final breaking point came in 1442, when a Moroccan official was caught with letters from Portugal that implicated him in a scheme to break Ferdinand out of prison and bring him home. The official was brutally flogged in front of Ferdinand and then executed, while Ferdinand was separated from his remaining companions and locked into a tiny windowless prison cell. Ferdinand lingered on for another 15 months, shattered in body and spirit, but by June 1443 he had undergone enough, and he gave up his spirit after a brief illness. Even in death the poor prince was to have no respite, and his naked and disemboweled corpse was hung upside down from the walls of Fez for observers to gawk at. It was a miserable end for Prince Ferdinand, and remains an ineradicable stain on Henry's character. Even at the time, this betrayal of his brother was considered deeply scandalous. But by 1441, even as Ferdinand was languishing in a Fez dungeon, Henry found himself able to turn his efforts back to his exploration of the African coast. Over the course of the next five years and with the backing of his brother the regent, Henry sent out a battery of expeditions that dramatically expanded the amount of coastline known to the Portuguese, and which finally succeeded in passing the Sahara. 
The first of these expeditions was sent out under the command of a knight in Henry's service by the name of Nuno Tristayo. On this first expedition, Tristayo reached Cape Blanc, near the modern-day border of Mauritania, and captured around ten natives whom he brought back to Portugal as slaves. These were the first slaves captured on the mainland from Henry the Navigator's voyages, and this moment is arguably the inception of the Atlantic slave trade. Tristayo's second voyage in 1442 was also momentous. In it, the Portuguese discovered the island of Arguin off the coast of what is now Mauritania, and encountered the first actual permanent human settlement in all their voyages since 1420. Of course, Tristayo and his men attacked the peaceful village and carried 14 of them off as slaves. Over the next several years, dozens of Portuguese slavers would ravage the area, severely depopulating the entire region. By 1455, Hundreds of slaves would be shipped to Portugal every year, victims of a rapacious power convinced of its own virtue. Azurara himself witnessed one of the very first shipments of African slaves arrive in Portugal to be parted from one another and delivered into bondage. He writes, On the next day, which was the 8th of the month of August, very early in the morning, by reason of the heat, the seamen began to make ready their boats, and to take out their captives and carry them on shore, as they were commanded. And these, placed all together in that field, were a marvellous sight, for amongst them were some white enough, fair to look upon and well proportioned, others were less white like mulattoes, others again were as black as Ethiops, and so ugly both in features and in body, as to almost appear the images of a lower hemisphere. But what heart could be so hard as to not be pierced with piteous feeling to see that company? For some kept their heads low and their faces bathed in tears, looking one upon another. Others stood groaning very grievously, looking up to the height of heaven, fixing their eyes upon it, crying out loudly, as if asking help of the Father of nature. Others struck their faces with the palms of their hands, throwing themselves at full length upon the ground, Others made their lamentations in the manner of a dirge after the custom of their country. And though we could not understand the words of their language, the sound of it right well accorded with the measure of their sadness. But to increase their suffering still more, there now arrived those who had charge of the division of the captives and who began to separate one from another in order to make an equal partition of the fifths. And then it was needful to part fathers from sons husbands from wives, brothers from brothers. No respect was shown either to friends or relations, but each fell where his lot took him. And who could finish that partition without very great toil, for as often as they had placed them in one part, the son, seeing their fathers in another, rose with great energy and rushed over to them. The mothers clasped their other children in their arms and threw themselves flat on the ground with them, receiving blows with little pity for their own flesh, if only they might not be torn for them. Zurara also tells us that Prince Henry the Navigator himself was present at the scene. And you might ask yourself, did he uncomfortably avert his eyes as if to hide from the agony he was inflicting on fellow human beings who had done him no harm? Did he appear pained by the plight of those torn away from their families forever? Well, 
"'No,' says Zurara helpfully. "'His chief riches lay in his purpose, "'and he reflected with great pleasure "'upon the salvation of those souls "'that before were lost.'" The discovery of Arguin, a defensible island off the mainland with its own freshwater source, was an important milestone for the Portuguese exploration of the African coast. On Arguin, the Portuguese built a fort and a trading post, or factory, which also doubled as a base for ships to refit and replenish, thus allowing exploration even farther to the south. Arguin would become, in time, a very profitable hub for Portuguese trade, and was the first permanent Portuguese base established along the Atlantic coast of Africa. In 1445, Henry the Navigator finally achieved his great object. His captain succeeded in sailing beyond the Sahara and encountered the jungles of Senegal beyond. Henry had achieved one of his stated goals, to outflank the lands of Islam and find the pagans beyond. The sea route to Senegal had been established, and gold would now begin to flow back to Portugal. The Portuguese also discovered the mouth of the Senegal River, though they were unable to explore it due to inclement weather. On his fourth voyage in 1446, Tristayo and his compatriots' depredations finally caught up with them and he and his crew reaped the whirlwind they had sown. On that voyage they sailed farther than any had sailed before them, and arrived at the mouth of a large river, not positively identified, but likely the Gambia River. As Tristayo and his men were navigating this river by way of rowboats, they were ambushed by some eighty natives with bows and poisoned arrows. Of the twenty-two men on the rowboats, only two may have survived. Such was the potency of the poison. The remaining seven sailors on Tristayo's caravel were attacked as well, and two of them died in agony shortly thereafter from their poisoned wounds. The remaining five seamen, one mediocre sailor and four boys, managed to cast off and get away from the river and into the open ocean. There they spent a terrifying sixty days drifting aimlessly, completely lost, until they were picked up by pirates off the coast of Portugal, where they were indeed fortunate to have been carried by the wind and current. The death of Tristayo, one of Henry's favorites, combined with an increase in native resistance to Portuguese incursions, put a damper on Henry's exploration attempts, which would not seriously resume until 1455, when the aging Henry would send out his final battery of exploratory expeditions. The most important of these expeditions were sent out under Alvise da Caramasto, a Venetian navigator in Henry's employ, and Diego Gomez, a Portuguese knight. These expeditions reached as far south as Guinea-Bissau, navigated the great rivers of Senegal and the Gambia, accidentally discovered the Cape Verde Islands, and made contact with several of the local kings and tribes. It was at this point, in the year 1460, that Henry the Navigator fell ill and died. He did not live to see the culmination of his project to reach the Indies, but it was he, more than any other, who set into motion those forces of discovery which would eventually bring about the European discovery of a new world. Music